Holy and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of being in the company of men. We thank you for this place. We thank you for the generosity of the swinks in allowing us to use it. I thank you for each and every man here tonight and ask that you would continue to bless them and their families. Uh, we thank you for our bishop, Mark Lawrence, and pray that his words tonight would be your words and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, they would uh, transform our hearts and shape our very lives. Come on in, men. There's some, pla- there's some pews up in the front here. Well, I worked all afternoon on what I was going to talk about and decided not to do that. So, um, since we're getting real close to Palm Sunday and uh, the passion of Jesus, I decided to switch here and uh, preach on this passage from John chapter 12. And um, Jesus and his disciples have come into... uh, Jerusalem, it's just a few days before uh, what we think of as Good Friday, and some Greeks come to uh, fill up one of the disciples and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus, and uh, Philip then brought these uh, Greeks uh, to Jesus, and in that context, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this purpose that I came into this hour. Father, glorify yourself. And he goes on to say, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Well, over the years, I've asked myself, what kind of men he will draw to himself? Who are these people he will draw to himself? And how will he draw them? And I've come to this, that he will draw all who sin, all who suffer, and all who seek. All who sin. In my experience, uh, it's not always our successes that draw us to God, that teach us the most about God. Sometimes we learn more from our failures, our mistakes, uh, and uh, foolish acts. And often we get to a place in life where we're carrying so much burden. It's kind of like those times when they used to put the, the, the groceries in the old um, paper bags. I guess someplace they're doing that. And sometimes you just put too much, too many groceries in there. And you've got too heavy of a load. And you're carrying it from the, from the house, uh, the car into the house. Pretty soon you, you feel like something, a bag is giving way and you think it's going to drop. And you finally get into the house and you just set it down before it all comes out. And sometimes our sin gets all gathered together and begins to weigh us and burden us. We don't know what to do with it. it brings a truckload of guilt. 
I think of that man named Claude Eberly. I, I suppose a few of you are, but most of us aren't. Few of you are old enough to remember World War II. And Claude Eberly, at least he says he was a bomber on uh, a B-29. He said he was there on an uh, island in the Pacific when he got the orders of a mission, secret mission. And uh, he said all he knew when the plane took off were the coordinates of where he was to push the button to drop the bomb. And when the plane came over Hiroshima, the coordinates came into view, he pushed the button, and the big one fell. Says as the plane turned to head back to the base, he saw the mushroom-shaped cloud coming. I've seen it on a on a movie screen, seen it on a television screen, but I never saw it the way he saw it. He got back to the base, feeling a weight of guilt, and he went to his commanding officer told his commanding officer that he just couldn't get rid of the sense of guilt. Commanding officer said, look, young airman, your orders came from elsewhere. You were following orders. Any guilt that says not guilt. It didn't go away. So he went to base commander, told the base commander of the whole thing. Base commander said, look, young man, your orders came down from the President of the United States, highest authority in this country. And the guilt that says not yet didn't go away. He was eventually sent by various uh, uh, therapists and medical professionals all trying to, to deal with his guilt. Never vanished. They finally dismissed him from the, or the military. He started doing crazy things, stealing things out of stores. Finally was uh, brought before a judge. Judge asked him, why in the world are you stealing things you could easily afford? He said, said, Judge, I want someone to tell me I'm guilty. I want someone to tell me I'm guilty. Oddly enough, you know, the U.S. military has no history of never being a bombardier on a B-29. He served. He flew the reconnaissance plane. He flew the reconnaissance plane that flew over early and signaled back to the base, all's clear, send the bombers. The problem was he couldn't face the role he played consciously. But he couldn't write himself out of the story. So he's carrying this truckload of guilt. Whether whether he, he's really guilty or not, that, that's not for me to say. That's just how he felt. Sad thing is many people that go to church, many Christians could have told him where to go. They would tell him to go to the cross of Christ. Many of you go to church every Sunday. You say the confession. The priest stands up, says the absolution. And you walk out a free man. But the 
Apostle Christ draws us to first get a glimpse of it. Draws us to our guilt and sin. There's another group of people that uh, are drawn by the cross of Christ. And those that's those who suffer. Most people that have gone midway through the journey of life have come in contact with some, some deep suffering, either in themselves or, or with others. And often we come to know the, the presence of God. Uh, it's odd, but sometimes the very kinds of suffering that drives some people away and out of the church drives other people out from the world into the church because they're looking for an answer for the suffering that they've experienced. I was talking one Sunday at St. Philip in Charleston. I was there for my annual visit. At an 8 o'clock service, I was talking about the, the way, the, sometimes I, I said that the preachers and theologians aren't always the ones who know the most about the cross of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we preachers remind me of, of a schoolboy that can tell you all the parts, the, the anatomy of a frog and can't tell you where to find one on a hot summer's day. But the, the layman or the laywoman who has clung to the cross of Christ in the midst of emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, physical suffering, sometimes knows more about the cross of Christ because they have clung onto it in the midst of sorrows sufferings, defeats, and setbacks. Well, uh, as I said, I was preaching about this at uh, St. Philip's uh, one Sunday. And uh, as it turns out, after the service, the sermon, I'm sitting there in the bishop's chair, which at St. Philip's is right there by the altar rail. And this very distinguished, well-dressed, well-kept man came forward for a communion, and he's kneeling right there beside him. I'm thinking, looking at, down at him, thinking to myself, boy, I probably missed the mark with him. I can't imagine that he's had much of this in his life. Oh, I missed the opportunity with him. Well, after the service, I'm standing there in the foyer, and people are coming through, and he stops to take my hand. He says, Boy, you really got me. When you when you talked about that cross and people holding and clutching onto the cross of Christ, because I just buried my wife two months ago of cancer. It was an extremely painful time to watch her die, and she suffered greatly from it. And their last days, all she did was had that cross around her neck holding that cross, clutching it. And you described it perfectly how she had hung on to that cross of Christ. And when you started talking about it today, you gave me a great deal of hope. And I guess the cross is drawing me to it. If I be lifted up from the earth, the Jesus, I will draw all to myself, all men to myself, all who sin, all who suffer, and all who seek. You know, not everyone in this world is, is trying to get ahead, climbing up the ladder of success and 
Sometimes those who have climbed the ladder of success only get to the top and find it's leaning against the wrong wall. Sometimes people want to know what's the heart of things, what life is all about, what it means. Why was I here on this earth? What is my purpose? Sometimes that comes even after we've reached a place of success and we've had quite an accomplishment and a, and a, and a, a long ledger of, of, of uh, resume. But then we get to a place where we want something that means something, that will last. And Jesus says, uh, knock and the door will be open. Ask and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. Seek and and you'll find. Sometimes the cross of Christ is the thing that draws us to a sense of meaning and purpose. Let me sum all of this up, I suppose, in a story that I'm sure Ken's heard me tell more than one occasion. And I'll conclude with this because I think it summarizes why it is that the cross uh, draws us to God. In the early 1900s, around 1910 or so, there was a man named George Harley. George Harley uh, had five earned degrees. He had a, a doctorate in theology, had a degree in anthropology, a degree in sociology, was a medical doctor, and had an advanced degree in the diseases of the tropics. All by the time he was 35. He's married to a woman named Winifred who was seven and a half months pregnant. And after he'd finished all his uh, education, he was ready to get on with life. He sensed that God was calling him to be a missionary doctor in Africa. So they got on a boat and sailed from North Carolina uh, across to what we think of today as Liberia. And George and Winifred, they began walking into the jungle. One night they were setting up camp and, and Winifred said, Don't look now, George. There's faces behind those trees. George said, Don't worry. God is with us. God will take care of us. The next day they went a little bit further and they came to a bend in the river where there was a village with a bunch of huts. And uh, George and Winifred thought, This is it. This is the place we're called to do serve. And so they built three huts. They built one hut in which to live. They built one hut to be the medical dispensary. And they built one hut as the worship hut. Their little boy Robert was soon born there. And every day people came to the medical hut for medical attention. But come Sundays when uh, worship was to be done, the only ones that ever went to the worship hut was George, his wife Winifred, and their little boy Robert. That's the way it was for three years. One day, George was working in the medical hut, and he looked out of the little cut window of the hut, and he saw his little boy, Robert, run and stumble and fall. The little boy got up again and ran and stumbled and fell. Got up a third time, ran and stumbled and fell a third time, and George said, oh, Lord, not, not my boy, Robert. The tropics have gotten to him. George said, I ran out and scooped him up, brought him back into the medical hut, laid him on the dispensary table, and I said, don't worry, Robert, your father has five earned degrees. He will find out what's wrong. George said, I reached back for everything I knew, 
and I presided over the death of my boy thousands of miles from my home in Norwood, North Carolina. George said Winifred and I, we built a little box. We put some African leaves in it. We put our little boy Robert in there. George said I picked it up, started carrying it through the village to the burial ground when we walked by the blacksmith shop. The blacksmith said, what do you got there? I said, I got my boy, Robert. Blacksmith said, I'll help you carry him. George said, for three years we'd been there. And that was the first offer of help we had received. George said, uh, the blacksmith and, and I got him out to the burial ground. And Winifred's there and we dug a, a hole and we put the little casket in there and we covered it up with dirt. And George said, I made a makeshift cross out of some limbs and I stuck it in the ground. I tried to say some prayers. And I was so overcome with grief. I just collapsed on the, on the ground and there with my head beneath that little cross on that mound of dirt, I began to weep like a child for the past. And as I was lying there weeping, I heard the African running back to the village, yelling at the top of his lungs, white man, white man, white man. He cried like one of us. He cried like one of us. George said the next Sunday, Winifred and I, we somehow or another dragged ourselves down to the worship hut expecting no one to be there. And the whole village was. Next Sunday, the whole village was. And that's the way it was from that time on. Well, George was back in the United States on missionary furlough. He was preaching in one of the congregations that supported uh, him and Winifred. And in the middle of the sermon, he told the story. And afterwards, people were coming out of the church, stopping and shaking hands with uh, Dr. Harley, as, as people do to this preacher. One man stopped and shook his hand and said, Dr. Harley, that was a powerful story you told about your son. But you know what bothered me about that story? And George said, no, what? You had to give up your son in order to break through to the people. And George looked at him with penetrating eyes and said, and that's what God had to do to him. We say we throw around the phrase, we even say it on Sunday morning, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But sometimes we don't get the, the human and spiritual cost of it all. When these Greeks were brought to Jesus, Gentiles, because they wanted to see Jesus, Jesus recognized now is the time. This is the sign. The end is near. The time that I have come is right here. Now will the powers of this world be thrown out. Now is the time the judgment of this world is 
and I am when I am lifted up from the earth. So draw all men to myself. Who are those that will draw? All who sin and know it and feel the weight of it. All who suffer and need some place to go with their suffering that makes sense of it all. And all who seek for life's meaning will be drawn to him. I have no doubt there are some of you here tonight that have been drawn to the cross of Christ, drawn into relationship with God, not through your holiness, not through your goodness, not through your virtue, not through your intelligence, not through your spiritual acumen, but perhaps you've been drawn like me through your sin, through your suffering, and through your seeking. If I had time, I'd come up with another F called shame, but I'm not going to take the time to go into that. Just if there's a lot of shame in the closet that Jesus bears as well. But anyway, at a night like this, we, uh, men talk about a lot of things, but there are some deep things in each of us. You never know what's there. So take the time to engage one another. Share your life with one another. Talk about the fun things. Talk about the deep things. And create a place that uh, the presence of God can bless the fellowship. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Uh, for there is the place of blessing. My guess is there's not a man here that's not known sin, suffering, or seeking. So that's what makes it good to be with a bunch of fellow travelers on this road of life. God bless you. I thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. And as we draw near to Palm Sunday, if you don't have a place to go, St. John's, Florence isn't a bad place to be. I know we got some people here from Christ Church. Maybe some even Presbyterians and Baptists. God forbid that you're probably here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm delighted that you are. Uh, let me pray. Father, I do thank you for the men who have gathered here tonight. We thank you for the hospitality and the graciousness of this place where we get together. And we thank you for those who have provided it. And Thomas and for Francis and Marion and for their wonderful hospitality. We thank you for those who have prepared this food and for their work and labor. We thank you for the sacrifice that they've expended in doing that. Thank you for the opportunity that some have had to shoot skeet and some of us to shoot the bull and for some of us just to have a good time getting to know one another. We thank you, Lord, that out of the midst of our lives, various different places and things we've experienced, you have brought us to yourself through uh, sometimes through our sins, sometimes through our suffering, sometimes through our seeking. And we pray that your spirit would bless this food in our fellowship. Use this food for our use, us to your seat service. Keep those we love in your care. Guide them in your ways. And fill us this night with glad and grateful hearts. For we thank you for this fair spring evening. And the fun that we have as men to be together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.